Welcome to the Jess Larson Show, where I interview innovators and leaders. Today on the show, we've got Herman Simon. Herman, thanks for doing this. Hi. Yes. So, Herman, I'm excited to talk about your new book, True Profit. Um, but can you give people a little bit of background on how many books you've written and and how you've grown a company to uh, to such a size? You know, what how big the company was when you stepped down, and then how big it's gotten now. And uh, making on Thinkers 50 and, and some of the highlights for people not familiar with you. I grew up on a small farm in Germany, studied economics, uh, became a professor for 16 years. And I also spent a couple of years in the U.S. at uh, MIT, Harvard and Stanford. And as a professor, you are supposed to write books. So I developed this habit. And in the meantime... It's adding up to about 40 books, uh, which have been translated in, in 30 languages. And after 16 years, I was fed up with teaching and founded uh, Simon Kutcher and Partners. Dr. Kutcher was my first doctorate student. And uh, we today have uh, 43 offices uh, all over the world. Uh, 1,850 employees. Last year, our revenue was $522 million. And our specialty is pricing at profit. Uh, when I retired a couple of years ago, we had about uh, 600 employees. So my uh, successors tripled the size of the company. And I'm very happy about this development. So one quick thing I want to bring up there. There's so many people that feel like, you know, when the business news shows Mark Zuckerberg being a billionaire by 30 and stuff, there's so many things in the business press that can tell us, oh, you're too old to start or you, you missed your window. Like, you know, pro athletes need to get drafted when they're teenagers or early 20s or something. So uh, if you don't mind sharing, how old were you when you started the business? 48. 48. So I, I, I became a full professor in Germany at 32. That's a very young age for a full professor. Was a professor for 16 years. And uh, when I gave up my professorship, a tenured uh, position, I was 48. Uh, so you're never too young. Ray Kroc at McDonald's started at 54. Well, he's actually an example to me. You know, I think that he is such a good, like, he is such a good example of you know, that the ageism that sometimes gets people labeled is totally inappropriate when you see, uh, I don't know, I think me at, at 42, you know, I have the business ups and downs. And sometimes I feel like, oh, did I miss things, you know? And by your standards, I shouldn't even be started yet, right? Last Sunday, I met Horst Schulze. You probably don't know the name. He is the best hotelier in the world. He founded Ritz-Carlton, and when he retired as CEO of Ritz-Carlton on a Friday, he was 63 years old, and on Monday, his wife said, you are crazy, he started Capella Hotels, and Ritz-Carlton used to be the best hotel in the world, now it's Capella Hotel, and the single best hotel in the world is Capella in Bali in Indonesia. And he started that at the age of 63. Uh, he's from my home region, and we had a meeting, a reunion of people who um, have been successful in the world in our home region. It was a very uh, cozy, emotional meeting. So he's another example that you really can start something revolutionary, actually, at a very advanced age. I want to start off talking about your new book. I've only just started True Profit. Um, and can, can you talk about... Well, A, can you give us the premise of the book and then tell us why you decided to write it? Peter Drucker, late friend of me, said, profit is the cost of survival. True profit book, which only focuses on profit, on the drivers of profits, also on the ethics of profits, which is a very important uh, aspect. So I have been concerned in my research, in my consulting work with profit, but I haven't found a comprehensive book, so I think I should write. It's a, a short book, not too voluminous. But I think it touches all aspects of profit, profit orientation and profitability. The other point was that uh, if you want to make yourself unpopular in almost any kind of society, you should speak out for profit orientation and profit maximization. <laughs> 
it's, uh, it's so contradictory. As I said, profit is a cost of survival, but uh, people are very uh, critical and skeptical and uh, very badly informed about profitability. So I had some thoughts when I was reading that part of the book. So we'll, we'll dig into that part because I'm very interested in it. You know, um, you know, my research on you, you quote my business hero, Warren Buffett, when you talk about, uh, you know, this idea that he believes uh, the number one thing for business is the ability to increase prices without losing volume. Can you explain to people why someone like Warren Buffett would, would value that ability in a business so yeah. highly? Uh, he calls that pricing power. And uh, if you look at the three drivers of profit, Price times volume minus cost. That is the definition of profit. Price is by far the most effective profit driver. And you can express that in numbers. If you can improve each of the profit drivers by 1%, so increase price by 1% without losing volume, your profit typically increases by 10%. So you have a profit multiplier 10 over 1 of 10. For cost, the profit multiplier is typically six, and for volume, it's only four. Why is it only four for volume? Because if you increase volume, you have something what you call marginal costs. Costs usually go up, and they eat typically for industrial and, and service products 60% of the increase you achieve in revenue by increasing volume. And if you can increase price, that's pure additional profit. So we're going to talk about the ethics of profit because I, I, uh, I share a lot of your views, and I'm excited to talk about them. Um, but one of the things I think, when I was starting your book, True Profit, it, it reminded me of the um, Charlie Munger quote, which I'm not going to do very well at, where he basically talks about uh, the financial games, especially in publicly traded companies, uh, where it's like these accounting, it's almost like sleight of hands with the words when they... They make all these different profit categories, and, and he, you know, Charlie Munger feels like the term EBITDA is one of the worst things to happen to business. And um, can, you, can you talk about, so like somebody who's maybe a little more uh, simple when it comes to accounting, like myself, who only does private businesses, where we are super worried about true profit because it's our true profit. We, we're not interested in the word games because our compensation changes based on estimated profits or what we can classify as profits. You know, we're worried about what the real money, like how much money did I actually make? We don't care what the accountants want to call the classifications. But then in the public accounting... Right. Uh, Manga is also right with this point, and it's a starting point of the book. Where you say what true profit is, true profit is what the owner or the entrepreneur can keep after he or she has fulfilled all obligations. Towards employees, towards bank, towards vendors, towards the state. What we can keep. And if you look at the, the reports, the annual reports, also the press you read of EBIT, that includes interest and taxes, I have to pay taxes and interest so I cannot keep some money. It's even more true for EBITDA, which includes a, a depreciation. If you use up your machine, you, you cannot count that as profit. And it's, it's getting worse and worse, for instance, um, we work Uber, they used uh, definitions where they included marketing expenditures, restructuring costs, customer acquisition uh, expenses, etc. And that is all misleading. It's, it's uh, obfuscation. Uh, the only relevant number is true profit or what we call in accounting terms net profit, so after all costs and taxes. And uh, the rest is yeah, misleading. Uh, sometimes you could even call it, it's, it's close to, to criminal by uh, misguiding naive investors who are impressed by these numbers. And you can say the, the, the weaker a company is in true profit terms, the more likely it is that they use these constructions to blow uh, the figure up, which they call then profit and something. So be, be skeptical, be critical, uh, really ask people what they mean when they talk of profit. 
Yeah. So can we dig into that a little bit? You know, how is it that somebody like Uber is allowed to invent their own version of profit? So, so can you, let's slow that down a bit. Let's pick apart a couple of things that they put in that calculation that would not normally be put in, like how they classified their marketing, customer acquisition. Uh, when, you, uh, when you make an announcement, when you uh, speak to, to investors, you can define terms where you say, we call that community-adjusted profit or something, and we include their customer acquisition costs or marketing expenditures. That's not forbidden. It, it, it would be forbidden in your uh, text declaration, but if you call something and, and describe it, that's not forbidden. And uh, a proof of the, 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 the little understanding people have is uh, a study I made, and uh, there are similar surveys in, in the US and elsewhere, where I asked people in the street, of $100 in revenue, if you deduct all costs and taxes, how much does remain? In, in Germany, people on the average said 22%. In the US, over several surveys, it was 31%, and the record holder is Italy with 38%. People believe that companies have a net profit margin after taxes, after all costs, of more than 20 or 30 percent. The true numbers are for Germany over many years 3.4 percent, for the US around 5 percent, and Italy is also about 5 percent. So people in the street overestimate the profit margin by a factor of 5 to 7. I, I actually have no explanation for this. It's, it's uh, unbelievable. Either people do not know anything about the the true relations in business or it's, it's envy of the entrepreneurs, of these rich people. They, they are misguided because they read of the extreme profits of Apple or the tech companies and think that uh, is, is typical for the economy, which is, uh, is uh, not the case. I, I was thinking about, back to Warren Buffett, um, you know, he talks about in, in finance how, uh, how often the people who are trying to tax an investment, you know, they're trying to make a fee between you and your investment, how they use such complicated words. He calls them the high priests of finance, where they use unnecessarily complicated words to try and make you feel stupid so that you feel like you must pay their fees because they understand it and you don't. And I, I think about friends. I have very uh, wealthy, smart entrepreneur friends who are multimillionaires who use the word EBITDA and what you would refer to as as true profit interchangeably, and uh, and it's because the you know the M and A folks from the people who bought their company or things like this the way it gets tossed around they don't slow down and and time doesn't get spent clarifying that like yeah a, a yeah. business really should be able to earn out its depreciation yeah. you don't get to keep that yeah. money. Yeah. I mean, when you, you talk of 15% uh, and, and a multiple on the 15% of 10 or 20, that's more impressive than if you talk of the true profit of 3% and apply a multiple of 8. So it's, it's part of the storytelling. And of course, the, the investment guys, uh, the, the guys who want to attract investors are portraying the whole story in a, in a very bright color. And it, it's your job, if you buy something, if you want to invest, to ask the right question, to find out, also to understand. I mean, these things are complex uh, and, and they can be manipulated depending on how you allocate costs, uh, depreciate, uh, etc. How you, you estimate future expenditures or revenue, it's, it's complicated. So I think an, a very important element, element of the whole game is that you can trust somebody. Only buy the numbers from somebody who you can trust. Well, why, why do you think, I mean, I can get why the CEO or the CFO who's trying to make themselves look good wants to, you know, do what Warren Buffett would call creative accounting to make the numbers seem bigger because then their stock price will go up. And I can see why the investment banking firm or the private wealth management firm that's in the business of selling stocks wants to do that and make it seem more attractive. But why don't they get just 
killed by the business journalists. Why, why, doesn't, why do you think we don't have a society where these guys get called on their creative accounting in much bigger ways? My experience with journalists and business uh, journalists is that their strength is not deep understanding of these things. So uh, they have to write a report, they have to do it under time pressure, they go to a presentation, uh, participate in a call, and then they write it usually down. That's different uh, for analyst reports, which are usually not available to the public, because the analysts uh, really try to understand and to dig uh, deeper. So if uh, you, you can ask your investment advisor or so to get an analyst report, they are of a different quality from what you re usually read in the journal. In the journal, uh, in, in the newspaper or magazine, they write operating profit. What is operating profit? Nobody has an idea. Is that EBIT, EBITDA? Is that profit after? It's usually not profit after taxes, so not so not profit. It, it, it can include all kinds of things. And uh, so if you just write, read operating profit, you know nothing. Can you talk about the idea of, during times of inflation, not being so proud of phantom profits? Well, why don't we start with, with um, describing what phantom profits are during an inflationary time? During inflationary time, you have two potentially misleading effects of profit. Let's assume that everything goes up 10%. Costs, revenue, and profit. Then you have 10% profit growth. What do you want? But if you have 10% inflation, your real profit hasn't changed because you have to discount it by 10%. So... That is what we call money illusion. You think you have more money, but in terms of purchasing, of real purchasing power, you don't have more money. Phantom profit is a little more complicated. It means that you can only depreciate on the procurement cost. So let's assume you bought a machine five years ago. And you have to replace it now or in a few years. Now with inflation, it's uh, 50 or 100% more expensive, but you can only write off the original procurement cost. So you are not able to accumulate uh, the, the reserves without paying taxes to buy the new machine. Uh, you can try to, to build up hidden reserve uh, if that is allowed by the, by the tax laws. And... So that's also deceptive. We call it a phantom profit because it's not a real profit. You cannot depreciate what you are using up in the capacity of the machine. So you will have problems refining, uh, refinancing the, the new machine. Well, and, and I appreciate you bringing this, this up because I had not thought was about that understandable? this. Was that understandable? Yeah, was it, too complicated? It, it was... You know, I, I had never thought about it to this level, and I appreciate you teaching the rest of this. Because, yeah, so like I, in our... I, I have a concrete numerical example in, in the book where I explain that, and you see how much money is missing because you had to pay taxes uh, which are not reflecting the value you, you need uh, when you re, uh, buy the new machine. Well, tell me if I understand this correctly, okay? So at my commercial real estate fund with my partners, we are, uh, we're building these tiny house adventure cabins to make our, little own, like our own little Airbnb resorts for like action sports families and adventure families near like mm -hmm. surfing beaches and mountains and ski resorts and stuff, right? And so the way we're getting our building materials at like less than half price is we're actually sawmilling our own logs so we can get our big, beautiful timber frames at like a 60% discount, right? Well, those sawmills are expensive. You know, they're, they're not like a giant sawmill, but they're still thousands and thousands of dollars, right? Um, and so when you explained all this, I thought about this idea of like, okay, yeah, it's great that we bought our original sawmill at a lower price, and now the logs we're getting out of it would be worth even more, so when we build these buildings, we can rent them more. But the, but the problem is like that gap is, like you said, it's an illusion. I don't think I'd ever realized this before because that sawmill is going to wear out. And now I'm going to have to buy a new yeah. sawmill, and it's not going to be at the old price. And P.S., in the meantime, yes. I don't get to depreciate 
the, the price of the sawmill I'm going to have to buy, I, I, I can only depreciate the old sawmill I did buy. So it's like, it looks like I made these profits, but I'm about to get it in the tail end, with, unsuspectingly realizing like, oh, I haven't been able to de depreciate what I'm actually going to have to buy. So this, this perceived operating margin, this temporary operating, operating margin between what I originally bought the equipment for versus what I'm going to have to buy the equipment for next time, it, it's not real and I shouldn't be so proud of myself. Yeah, that's a good description um, because you had to taxes difference. You couldn't depreciate it, deduct it from your, 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 your taxes. And uh, so you cannot retain untaxed the money to buy a new sawmill after 10 years. And, and that is uh, phantom profit. And the higher the inflation is, the bigger this phantom profit is, of course. Well, the reason that's important to me is... I get scared about raising prices. Will that lower my volume too much? You know? Mm -hmm. And you talk about this idea of, of pricing courage. And for me to think about like, yeah, if we're gonna stay in business, we've gotta keep we've gotta keep profit margins. And so to have the guts to to raise prices, when we know no customer wants prices raised, but to have yeah. the guts to yeah. do it because I'm realizing I'm killing my business not to even though it looks like I'm making some more money temporarily. Anyways, the concept was helpful to me to help me with my own thinking about pricing courage. This is a very important aspect uh, under inflation. And actually, we have a new book coming out in a few months, Beating Inflation. And if you look at inflation, I go back to the three profit drivers, price, volume, cost. Two of these three profit drivers, drivers are negatively Im affected by inflation. Costs go up, volume potentially goes down, and the price has to compensate for that. So if your costs go up, you, you have no choice but to increase price. But you shouldn't be naive by just passing through the cost increase to your customers because that doesn't take into account the willingness to pay of the customers. So you have to understand, are my customers willing to pay more? How much are they willing to pay more? And uh, that's usually not the full cost increase. Our experience at Simon Kutcher is that realistically, you can recover 50% of the cost increase through pricing, 20% through cost efficiency, and you may have to swallow 25, 30%. It's an illusion that uh, at least temporarily under these high inflation rates, uh, your profit will not be affected. Uh, you have to be realistic. And uh, quite a few people make the mistakes that pass through the full cost increase and then fall off the cliff with their sales. So you're, yeah. you're well advised to be cautious in that regard. But you must also have courage. That's, by the way, a very difficult new world for salespeople. Uh, under the prevailing conditions in the last 30 years, you could say, our last inflation was in the 1970s, so nobody has experience who is in charge today. Um, we had average inflation rates of 2%. Salespeople went once per year to the customer with a request for a modest price increase of uh, 2%. Now we have a situation where salespeople have to go four or eight times to their customers and request a price increase. That's a very tough and difficult world. So we also give advice that the, the, the salespeople have to be psychologically hardened because they come under extreme pressure. But you, well, you, uh, you need support from the, the leadership, the CEO, to, to uh, cope with this situation. Well, I appreciated your advice. I've heard you give elsewhere of this idea of, um, as a culture for your company, get, you know, get a culture of having smaller price increases more often to deal with it. Yeah, absolutely. I describe that in detail in the new uh, Beating uh, the Inflation book. Uh, and, and there are several reasons. One challenge is, not to run after the cost wave. If, if you just react and wait, uh, a baker who has a couple of, uh, of, of outlets, he said, I, wa I was always 
too shy to increase prices. I postponed it, and then I had to do a big step, which uh, angered customers. I, I'm now doing it in smaller steps more frequently. So it, it remains below the threshold where customers really react negatively. So adjust prices more often in smaller steps rather than only once per year in, in, in a big step. And with now 8, 9, 10% inflation, uh, I suggest you should, if, if your costs are going up like that, you should do it every, every two months or so. Yeah, like I'm addicted to Mexican food, and we've got some great Mexican food here south of Park City, Utah, where I live. And I could use, I used to be able to get a great lunch for like, you know, $11, $12, which I could lie to myself and say was closer to $10, but now they're all 15 yeah. <laughs> but they've all become 15 so you just have to take Unavoidable it. Unavoidable, and uh, nobody can escape. Uh, a friend of mine, who actually also an economist, he asked, why have tomatoes increased so much in price? And I explained to him, I know a tomato factory, that tomatoes are essentially energy. Because they are grown in greenhouses, uh, which have to be heated. And, and uh, so tomatoes are energy. So they increase 40% or so with the same uh, percentage as, as gas or, or oil. Well, um, I think I, I like some advice that you gave someone else about, um, you know, if you, when you do need to increase prices as a business owner, you know, don't use justifications like um, all our competitors are doing it or things like this. Customers don't have a lot of sympathy for that. But you, you said cost justification is, is a good one. Sounds like maybe you can get half of it that way. Uh, but you also talked about these ideas of increasing value and maybe adding some free services. And it goes back to that Warren Buffett quote about the, you know, how highly he values the ability of a, a company who can yeah. Um, increase increase profit margin without lowering volume. Um, can you talk about ideas or ideas for business owners listening today, or investment fund managers yeah. listening today yeah. to advise their portfolio companies on how to increase perceived customer value? I know you've talked about innovation and communication and things like this. As a pricing expert, I have been asked thousands of times what is the most important aspect or factor in pricing. And my answer is always the same, value to customer, or more precisely, perceived value to customer. And actually, the old Romans in their Latin language, they understood this very well because they have the same word for price and value, namely pretium, like in precious. This is the fundamental balance. So if you want to increase your price, you must first at least try to increase the perceived value. And uh, that is the, 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 the fundamental approach to the new situation that you work on the value side. And under these crisis conditions, it's more important to focus on hard value, not so much on soft values like image or uh, print, etc. Uh, let me give you the example of a heat pump. Heat pumps are becoming very popular. And you should quantify the advantages of a heat pump compared to an oil or, or, or gas heating systems. The same for uh, an electric car. Uh, how much more energy do you save? So under these conditions, focus on hard data. And then check your add-on services. What can you give more to your customers? That, that can be in, a, in, a, in the practice of a doctor or of a hairdresser. That can be a cup of, of coffee or, or something. And coming back to Horst Schulze, the best hotelier in the world, he said, my challenge was that we have very low-paid people, very, very simple people, who deal with heads of states, with billionaires, etc. And the first thing I did was to teach them a new language. They don't say hi, but they say welcome. They say sir and madam. And they don't say okay, but they say it's my pleasure. That is something which delivers value, perceived value, without costing anything. Of course, it costs something in, in, in training, 
so think about where can I deliver additional value without cost increases. And uh, you, you will find always ideas and uh, solutions. And I give many, many uh, examples uh, in, in the book. So your, your, your lever to work on prices should be value. When you talk about increase, increasing customer perceived value through communication, what's an example of that? Yeah, that's for an example. Uh, an example is, what do your salespeople talk about? And in many projects, we have found that they mostly talk about prices. That should be avoided. They took, they, their, their job is to talk about value. How reliable we are, how uh, punctual we are, uh, that we take back products which are not, uh, not accepted by the customers, that we are uh, flexible, uh, that uh, we offer personal contact. They should talk. They spend 80-90% of their time. They should talk about value. And in, in many cases and consultants, we have suggested, recommended, that price sellers are replaced by value sellers. That's not a short-term solution, but we look at the contribution margin, profit contributions, which individual salespeople deliver, and there are always huge differences. And we found out that most of the low-margin salespeople are price sellers. They, they always talk about discounts, grant discounts, etc. So this is just an example. Value communication of salespeople can change the whole picture compared to price communication. It's interesting, as you say that, like how, how I'm thinking about that for our businesses, of like, how are we communicating and... Do we need to relook at and specifically, do we need to retrain our teams? Because we probably do. I need to. I probably need to retrain myself. In, in two ways, uh, I already mentioned the psychological toughening, as I call it. I don't know whether that's well expressed in English. They are exposed to much more uh, pressure, more difficult negotiations. So role games, etc., could help them experience from uh, tougher sales guys. And then the, the content related to communication, to value, and especially to hard values. If you can prove advantages under the prevailing circumstances, especially in business to business, uh, the buyers are looking for hard value advantages. So think of an, of, of an automation system of robots. If you can prove how much labor costs they will save, they are willing to accept a price increase. But you have to, yeah, ideally, to, to prove it. You know, another example I'd love to have you explain a bit more related to this. Um, can you talk about how Lexus was able to increase their prices and have their volume continue to increase at the same time? I observed the introduction of Lexus very closely because we, work, we were working at um, a project for General Motors where General Motors was thinking of introducing a luxury brand. And of course, Lexus from Toyota has an excellent reputation for quality, product quality, but that was not the only thing. They offered to pick up the car for maintenance at the uh, customer's location and a couple of add-on services and they entered with a very low price and continued the price uh, continuously over, over the years. Again, in relatively small steps, not in abrupt step. And uh, at that time, nobody at General Motors believed that was in 1989-1990 that you could introduce, successfully introduce a new uh, luxury brand. Today, that's different with electric cars. I mean, Tesla is in this regard, a sensation. We haven't seen new brands for decades, and now we see Tesla being very successful, and a couple of others, Polestar and some Chinese, will come, which also have a realistic chance to, uh, yeah, to survive. And can you talk about, because I know you contrasted Lexus, who started lower and their prices went up, versus Apple, who started higher and the prices came down, which, you know, Tesla yeah. is probably similar there, started high and then they yeah. introduced lower models. Uh, can you, can you contrast those? Is, yeah, these two cases are very, very different. 
because Lexus was not a new product. It was just a car with good quality and add-on services, whereas the iPhone was a radically new product which defined a new price category. And I was just this afternoon thinking of a visit to Nokia in 2005. Nokia at that time had almost 50% of the mobile phone market in the world. And I've never visited a, a company as arrogant as Nokia. <laughs> they said we have 19,000 people in research and development now. Nobody can match our capabilities. And then Steve Jobs came with this totally new idea. So the iPhone was a totally new product, which established. He also had some tricks. He started with 599, then decreased it to 399. But when you have a such a radically a breakthrough innovation, you can set a new price level. So the two cases are not uh, comparable. Uh, Apple is, by the way, also interesting under the inflation aspect of pricing power. I think the pricing power of Apple is very, very strong. If they would increase their price by 10%, they would not lose much volume because uh, iPhone users don't switch. If Samsung or Huawei or Xiaomi would increase their price by 10%, they would lose probably 20, 30% of their customers. So there you see what pricing power means and what normal uh, competition means. And yeah. this, this pricing power by Apple is, of course, driven by, by excellent performance over the years, by a comprehensive uh, package of, of uh, value to customer. Convenience, yeah. uh, theory, and, and, and everything. Uh, well, listen, if people want to get their own copy of, of your new book, where's the best place for them? Yeah, the easiest way is to buy it uh, with, with Amazon or in a, in a bookstore. So you can get it everywhere. True profit. And then as far as finding out more about you, what's the best website for them to come to? HermanSimon.com. Herman with two N. That's a German way to write it. HermanSimon.com. Very easy. You know, maybe we'll shift gears for a minute. I want to talk about book writing. Um, you know, we're really interested in this idea of credibility marketing, this idea of, of the advantages of, of becoming known. Um, what do you feel like writing all these books, what do you feel like are some of the main advantages that have come to you professionally or for your business by, by being known as an author? I am not 100% certain whether book writing is still the most effective way to reach your... Okay clientele. Whether you with podcasts and videos and the digital are on a, on, on a better way. But I'm old-fashioned. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm enjoying uh, writing uh, the books. And uh, as I said, I, I wrote about 40 books translated into many languages. Um, and of course, it builds a reputation as speaker. The revenue, the income you get from books is relatively low compared to the fees you get as a speaker. That's strange. I don't know what, why that is so, because there's more information in the book than I can <laughs> deliver in 30 or 45 minutes. But uh, obviously, uh, the willingness to pay from the side of the listeners or the readers is, or the organizers, much higher for uh, speeches, uh, even for, for digital speeches, where, where you do not appear in, in person. Um, that's a strange thing, a kind of, of, of secret. But I you also know, experience if, if I listen to somebody, especially in person, that's different from reading a book from this person. So we convey something which cannot put into sentences and, and, and letters and books. The guy who in, kind of popularized the word content marketing, Joe Paluzzi, he started the Content Marketing Institute. Uh, I, I'm a fan of his. And he talks about really kind of the trifecta of like, having some sort of content that's coming out repeatedly, like a series like this, a blog, a, a podcast, a, a video show, something, right? And then the credibility of a book, and then speaking, that's kind of the, the three of them together, he kind of feels like is, is kind of the ultimate combo. Do you, do you have thoughts on that? Today, I got um, 
from the publisher Simon and Schuster, a large publisher in the U.S. My uh, information on the royalty for a book I published in 1996. So that's 20 years ago. The title was Pricing Power. And I'm still getting a couple of thousand dollars from this book, which has been published in 1996. And I would say that doesn't happen even, doesn't happen to a Harvard Business Review article or to a podcast or a video. So it's a longevity of, of books, which, uh, of, of good books. Some book, books uh, perish, are perishable goods, but good books uh, survive, can survive for a very, very long time. You know, um, there's a professor at Northwestern named Albert uh, Lazo Barabasi. He's a, originally from Transylvania. And he did a really exhaustive study with his PhD students on kind of the theory of success. And he said, essentially, what they found when they're looking at artists and uh, pro athletes and fighter pilots and business people, all these different categories, is they said, like, performance is based on you, but success is a combination of your performance plus our perception of your performance. Absolutely. Yeah. And the, like, the less objective your performance, like a pro athlete, did you win the game or not? It's pretty easy for anybody to spot. And so your success and how well-known you are will be very tied to your performance. But like a fine artist, it's very subjective. And so are you in the right galleries? What are people saying about you is this signal that actually matters yeah. so much and that most of us are somewhere in between there. And so this idea of a book like yours, or, or you, you talked about your friend Peter Drucker. You know, his, bu his books that are still so admired today even after he's gone, you know, like... If there was the Peter Trucker business, those books would be doing, <laughs> would be adding a lot of value all these years later, right? Because, like you said, they were a good book. Uh, Peter Trucker exemplifies another aspect. Um, Peter Trucker was born in Austria, in Vienna, and uh, then studied and, and worked in Germany. And he left Germany when Hitler came to, the Nazis came into power in 1933, immediately left because he was of Jewish origin. And if he had stayed in Germany, probably nobody outside Germany would know him. So it's also the base from where you communicate. And there are many examples. Ted Levitt from the Harvard Business School, he migrated at the age of 11 to the U.S. Um, Henry Kissinger, he was 14 when he came to the U.S. Uh, so in management, I think having the U.S. as a base for the global audience makes a huge difference, even compared to England or, or Australia or other speaking countries, because people perceive management wisdom as originating in the U.S. as coming from the U.S., and uh, for instance, my, my Hidden Champions books, which, which have become bestsellers, I think there's a decisive effect of us that the first uh, edition was published by Harvard Business School Press, also in 1996. And uh, of this book, more than a million have been sold in China. Uh, if the origin had been Germany, no way that more than a million of these books would have been sold in China. <laughs> no, there are many, many factors, and uh, it's, it seems almost impossible to predict the success of a book. Good example is Peters and Waterman in Search of Excellence. The publisher wanted to print 10,000 copies in the first run and was already skeptical whether they could be sold. Ultimately, more than 10 million were sold. <laughs> we have many bestsellers who were rejected by the first publisher and then became huge successes. And, and that depends on the factors you described and on, on, on many others. Well, um, you talked about, uh, you know, how podcasts and, and video shows like this cover a different sector of that space. What, why do you think they're interesting? You know, like... You started a company that did $500 million. You've written 40 books. Why, why make time to do shows like this? Because I think we reach another group. Young people don't read the newspapers. They use the digital media. Plus, the habit of, of consuming information is different. That even relates to books. For instance, 
in, in, in this book, I have very short chapters that you can read a chapter in, in 10 minutes. In my older books, I have chapters of 30, 40 pages where you need an hour or more for one chapter. And combining digital communication with written communication can create, create synergies. But the main point is that you reach different target groups, younger target groups. Plus, of course, uh, international, worldwide, with the English language, everybody can understand it, and there are no, no borders, no limits, uh, unless uh, the channel is blocked in Russia or somewhere else, which may happen. But uh, it's, it's an unlimited potential for, for reach. For instance, in, in China, uh, I, I gave a speech a virtual speech at a, at a large conference, and during the speech, 10.2 million people were watching. And over the next three, four weeks, uh, more than 20 million people were watching this video, this uh, virtual speech. And that goes far beyond what any any book can reach realistically. Unless, you're, unless you, ask, you are Karl Marx, I once had a meeting with publishers in China, and among them, so they, they said, oh, we, we may sell one million of a bestseller or something, and uh, among them was the publisher of Karl Marx, and he said, we sell 200 million Karl Marx per year because every student is obliged <laughs> to read Karl Marx. Well, I don't, I don't want to go down the Karl Marx journey, but I did love what you said about how silly Karl Marx's idea that all value is created by the worker is, when yeah. you said, yeah. yeah, you could have workers who create a steam engine today, no train company is going to buy it. That, that's yeah. absurd that that is the, the only thing yeah. there. Um, you know, that's why I call cost plus pricing Marxist pricing. That's a better term to lead people to, to abandon it than cost plus pricing things. This looks like, uh, as it makes sense, business. When you call it Marxist pricing, people think, I don't want to... Uh, have anything to do with it. Well, it's based on an imaginary version of the world, right? <laughs> um, I think my next question is, um, you know, on this show, I'm lucky to have had a number of folks who have been recognized by the Thinkers 50, who have written many books and are university professors at Harvard and Stanford and, and, and uh, top institutions in Europe. And, um, and very few of them have uh, built a company that did $500 million in revenue. Um, when you think about some of your business successes, what do you think you've done different than, than some other folks in related fields? I was never satisfied as a professor with doing theoretical research. I, I wanted, I strive to have an impact on practice. So I started very uh, early and without showing off, I, I think I, I am a leader. Uh, for instance, I'm proud of one thing. I said Dr. Kutcher was my first doctoral student with whom I started the company. Then three more of my doctoral students joined the company. They worked for their whole life. We have a photo taken in 1987 with the five people, my four doctoral students and me, and we have one from 2015. They all worked their whole life, became CEOs of the company after me, etc., so I think it has a little to do with leadership, uh, which, which I also learned during my time in the, in the German Air Force. I, I think that was a good practice for me to, to learn under difficult... I, I was in a, in a special fighter wing whose only mission was to drop nuclear bombs on certain targets uh, on the other side of the Iron Curtain. And when the Russians marched into Czechoslovakia in 1968, we had some very extreme situations where I was really challenged as a young officer. Um, maybe that's, that makes a difference to a typical professor. This, this concept of leadership, you know, it's spoken about so often, but very often we don't have a very good gauge on who's saying it. You know, everyone gets to have an opinion. But there's, there's no true prophets <laughs> to look at on everyone. Some people there are, but there's a lot of people with strong opinions that maybe don't have the track record to back it up. You know, these days, so many of the CEOs I talk to are friends or clients. They're really struggling with getting good people and keeping good people. 
that's obviously something you excelled at. What, what advice would you have for the rest of us? So I, I, I could speak an hour for it, but I, I cannot express it in, in, in one sentence. I, I think walk the talk, be authentic. Uh, I, I describe that, by the way, in other books. That's my autobiography, Many Worlds, One Life. Many Worlds, One Life. Okay. Yeah. And um, I don't know what leadership is. But when I look back at my, uh, my, my life, I think I was a kind of, of, of leader. If, if, you had, if you had one behavior that you did that helped you get those really top talent people to want to spend their hours with you, what's, what's one thing when it came to recruiting those real A players? My, my first principle, I had four principles. My first principle was honesty. And I had always one motto which is again in Latin, per aspera ad astra, that means on rough roads to the stars. Uh, when you, you pursue something, it's not going on a, on a smooth path, you will meet difficulties, you have to overcome them. So per aspera ad astra, on rough roads to the stars, that was always my motto. And I concluded each speech with, to my uh, team with this motto, per aspera ad astra. Uh, maybe final question. Um, you know, living so close to the Iron Curtain and, and the threat of, you know, the Cold War being, you know, potentially miles away instead of miles plus an ocean for a lot of us over here in North America. Um, what, what's what's a specifically one of those lessons you got from that kind of high intensity uh, group you were in in the German Air Force? Oh, we are in a, in a very similar situation again now with the war in Ukraine. And I think the one of the biggest mistakes the Germans make was made was to believe in eternal peace, and uh, we didn't spend enough on uh, on defense. Uh, that was a big mistake. Uh, a state must be able to defend itself. And now we in, uh, made a decision to invest hundred billion in in the. Uh, restructuring of the armed forces of Germany. We order F-35 uh, fighter jets, etc. We don't live in a, in a world where peace is guaranteed, as we, we see it now. Yeah. Luckily, we have the Americans who, who protect us. <laughs> yeah. um, Herman, this is great. Thank you for making time to do this today.